Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO, and today we're back in the studio on this lovely day, and we've got a special guest on the phone, someone who's become a good friend of mine. I think you're a good friend. I, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm uh, saying that, not really asking if I'm a good friend or not, but Dr. Sonia Kuffer of the University of Chicago Medical Center. Sonia, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you, Dino. And yes, you are a good friend. <laughs> I, I, that was kind of very presumptuous on me uh, to say that. I mean, we've known <laughs> no, each no, other it's for very accurate. <laughs> yeah, we've known each other now for what almost over a year. I, I've got to imagine, yeah. right? Because I think we began yeah. talking last year around this time. And full Absolutely. disclosure, um, Sonia was a recent recipient of a research grant. Uh, here at Project Purple, along with the Team Carone Foundation. It's a joint grant. It's our Rick Carone Fellowship grant that we always provide pancreatic cancer research in the Chicago land area. Um, so Sonia was this year's recipient, or really, I mean, I guess you can technically say 19, but it's so towards the end of the year that I just say this year, but uh, 1920 recipient, let's put it that way. Wonderful. And thank you. Thank you so much to Project Purple and to the Corone family for this this you know really important uh, grant and really will help us to continue doing the work that we do. Well, on that note, Sonia, I want to kind of give our audience. I know you fairly well, as we said, um, but I want to give our audience an opportunity to hear a little bit about your background. And as I always tell all our guests, you can go as high level or as uh, deep as you want in terms of your background and your history. And then you can kind of, some people have gone back to where they started in their schooling and then to where they are today. Um, and as uh, we'll go from there in terms of where we go and in, in terms of questions and stuff. So with that, sure. the microphone is yours. <laughs> well, thank you. And thanks so much for this opportunity. So Really, my uh, passion, I would say, in cancer prevention stems, really, if I think about it, back to a very close family member who developed colon cancer. Um, this was actually a great aunt uh, on my mother's side, but actually, she was really more like my grandmother because my um, mother's mother passed uh, from melanoma before I even uh, really got to know her. And so this um, aunt was kind of my substitute grandmother. And so she, um, at that time, colon cancer screening was not widespread or as adopted and accepted as it is um, hopefully today. Uh, and so she developed colon cancer when I was in high school. And I kind of saw her go through that battle of initial emergency surgery and then um, chemotherapy and then metastatic disease and, you know, all the way through to the end. And I sort of said to myself as I was starting college at that time, you know, um, I want to prevent something like this. I want to do everything I can so someone else doesn't have to experience what my family member did. Uh, and, you know, along with that, I had been interested in biology. I had a phenomenal uh, biology teacher in high school. Uh, Mr. Boyum was his name. Um, and he really sort of got me hooked on specifically even more spe specifically within biology on genetics. Uh, and so I kind of was primed going into college to be 
pre-med. Um, although I, I went to Yale University and I have to say that I was in the pre-med track, but then I realized, wow, there's so many other things going on at this university that if I go into medicine, I may never ever have the chance to study again. So I actually um, did my pre-med courses, but I ended up um, majoring in art history. Wow. And got so into it um, at that point that I even questioned whether medicine was going to be my future. And I had applied uh, in my last year to actually do um, a study uh, in the field of art history in Berlin, Germany. Uh, it happened to be on women artists, uh, and there was an archive there. And so I got a fellowship for a year um, and quickly realized that sitting in a um, an archive in a museum was incredibly lonely. <laughs> and I actually then found myself volunteering um, in a medical area. It actually was an interesting uh, center where they were helping victims of torture, which sounds like overwhelming and, and, and really difficult, but it was really interfacing sort of the interface of medicine and politics and social issues and immigration and all these different things all coming together. So that I realized that I needed that contact with human beings and I needed also the connection to feeling like I was part of some something bigger. So I knew at that point that, you know, I really wanted to do um, medicine. It also happened to be um, a time where I met my husband in Berlin. Uh, he was studying there from, uh, his, he's originally from Belgium, and so he was spending a year there as well. Uh, and so that that was a, a, a great thing that happened to me as well. So I not only figured out kind of my path uh, for my future career, but also my future partner in, in crime. So I had applied to medical school then during that year and came back. Um, and I'm originally from the Chicagoland area, northern suburb. And I had never really come to the University of Chicago. And when I came to interview for medical school, um, it kind of opened my eyes to the south side of Chicago and uh, this campus, uh, and it ended up being the place that I chose to come. And so, and then kind of, I've been here ever since, and that's not for uh, lack of thinking or even um, considering leaving Chicago, but I think at, e at each point in my um, medical training, there was always something that pulled me back. Um, and at the beginning, it was the training here for residency. Um, and then eventually it was, I had children and my parents were in the area. And so it was, it just made sense. And I've never regretted any, any part of that. And I've been really well taken care of here and, and really happy with the, the diversity of patients who I serve and take care of. Um, and then of course the, being at a major research institution, the connection to, you know, sort of world renowned basic and translational scientists, clinical scientists, um, across the spectrum and really have, have felt support all along the way. And as part of that, when I, um, so then I decided that I wanted to do gastroenterology, um, again, I think motivated deep down by my family members, um, fight with colon cancer, but also it sort of made sense. It was the kind of disease processes and and way of, you know, and it sort of 
blended, um, taking care of patients, both, um, you know, people who have uh, more minor GI issues to the very um, sick patients who have, you know, bleeding ulcers in the hospital, but also allowed me to kind of find this niche where I could really serve those who are at highest risk for uh, developing GI cancers. And I built a, a cancer, what we call a GI cancer risk and prevention clinic here under the umbrella of our larger cancer risk uh, program, which is led by um, a wonderful breast oncologist, Fumi Olapade, who had really sort of bucked the trend in the 90s when um, genetic testing was, you know, not that widespread, she really started a clinic here. And so I had, you know, this foundation that I was able then to build a specific focus on GI. So that's, um, you know, that's clinically what I, what I do now, see patients there along with a genetic counselor and with um, other types of trainees. And in addition to that, I've built a, um, a research program that focuses on trying to understand how different individuals, um, how their tissues, in this case, I focus on the colon, how they respond to different environmental factors, either good or bad, in terms of cancer development. So I've been fortunate to, at least for now, have some uh, grant funding that supports um, some of the work that's done in the lab. So I, I love my job. I love my patients. I hope that we're making a difference um, for them, and it keeps me going every day. That's awesome. So I'm going to back up a little bit. So you went to Yale for art history mm-hmm. and that's, that's like one of the, the, the well, I mean, not to age anyone here, but I know I had a former employee and her spouse was getting his like PhD in art mm-hmm. at Yale. And it's like one of the mm-hmm. world's most renowned programs for art. Yeah, I think, I think for art and art history and architecture, I, I was sort of drawn into that, um, you know, area and mm-hmm. definitely, you know, um, very much won over by sort of the, the vast array of different areas that were being studied. So it, it, it draws you in. And I think in the end, I'm very, very happy that I had that opportunity. I think it gives me a side to me that is, a complementary side to the mm. more scientific thinking and maybe the more humanistic to understand, you know, what, what it means to take care of a human life and to think about kind of the plights that, that individuals face and, and the context in which all of these things are happening. So I, I you know, I'm very grateful to have had that uh, experience and had phenomenal um, professors and, and colleagues along the way. I'm going to throw this out there and, and, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit further, but it's kind of fascinating right now knowing that because I know you and hopefully we'll be able to, to give the audience a picture of this. So being an art history major and, and realizing the history of art and everything, it's, there's almost like this parallel though with what you've been doing here though with pancreatic cancer as we are building a history for genetics Mm-hmm. and everything that's happening on this early detection and prevention area. So it's, it's, to me right now, it's very fascinating. And I'm going to bring this full circle, hopefully at the end of the conversation. So <laughs> you had this biology teacher also that kind of got you hooked on genetics as well early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then 
when you came back to the Chicagoland area, did you immediately know that you were going to go into GI specialty and genetics or was it, I mean, you know, not that that's on a higher level, you know, boiling it down a bit, you still have to, because you didn't have a a pre-med background or you didn't have a medical background, you still have to kind of dive in and do the basics, right? People just don't go into specialties. They still have to get through the the basic part of being a doctor and and getting those core classes through. Yeah. I I think it's it's interesting because I just, on Friday, just a few days ago, I I taught second year medical students and I, I taught them the lecture that I remember sitting in and particularly one of our gastrointestinal pathologists, Dr. John Hart was presenting and I was just fascinated by the different things he was showing us in terms of the, you know, the normal GI tract and then what can happen when uh, cancers arise and, and, um, I think that also was very motivating. And then during our third year in medical schools where you kind of have that experience of rotating on all different kinds of specialties, surgery, medicine, OBGYN, psychiatry, you know, you, you kind of make the round, so to speak. And I remember surgery being one of my first rotations and thinking I'm never, this is never going to be something that I would do. And then being enamored by it. I mean, it was fascinating. I remember I was on transplant surgery and we would go in the middle of the night, they would call us and we would go, you know, either fly or drive somewhere to harvest, you know, an organ that was going to come back here and be transplanted into um, somebody who was basically, you know, dying of liver disease. And to me, that was amazing, that idea that you could you know, with your hands that you could really save someone's life. So I think that mo- that sort of informed my career decision making in the sense that I realized that I like the practical and being mm-hmm. able to do something um, and, you know, having more, having at least procedures be part of my career. So that kind of all came together um, and GI seemed like the, the best the best of all worlds. So that that was sort of the focus on on GI, and um, again, have never looked back. It made a lot of sense, and you know, there's there's people along the way that you meet. I then, when I was a uh, in residency, there was a geneticist who was who came to our uh, university, Nathan Ellis, and he sort of got me thinking more about how research can be part of this whole picture. So. Mm-hmm. There have been, you know, really important influencers along the way, definitely. It's fascinating. And, you know, it's really interesting how people can influence someone in a positive way, right? Like in in terms of your career path and, you know, you look back and it's so fascinating to me. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. So I want to talk about, so you are a GI specialist. Mm Mm-hmm. But GI can be very broad. And this is something for me, and, and you know, our, uh, we mentioned before we were recording, our audience is pretty vast. I mean, we've got, you mm-hmm. know, patients, clinicians, participants, um, people from all walks of life. And I think with, you know, our podcast, we try to focus a lot of times on pancreatic cancer, but mm-hmm. pancreatic cancer falls in that GI family. But I think there's 
you mentioned that colon cancer, I think gets kind of the problem when people think at least maybe for me, I know for me, I always think like GI, I always think of colon or the stomach Mm -hmm. don't necessarily Mm -hmm. think of pancreatic, you know, now knowing, you know, 10 years later, you know, initially when we went for my dad, they were like, GI, why were you going to GI specialist? That's not the pancreas. So, but but the GI specialty is very broad, right? Or am I wrong? No, 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 no. I mean, um, it's a little crude, but you can think of it that we do everything from the mouth to the anus and everything in between and anything that's connected to the the GI tract. So it really, it, you know, it's the esophagus, the stomach, and then, you know, you have the small intestine, which is where all the absorption happens of food, but you need things to help you absorb different things. So you need pancreatic juices, um, and the enzymes in particular that are within the pancreatic juice to mix with the food so that you can absorb a variety of different things, especially fat. Mm-hmm. And then you also need, you know, the bile from the liver um, that hangs out in the gallbladder for a little while and then also dumps into the small intestine. Um, you also need that for absorption. And then really the colon of all the organs is kind of... Um, in some sense, it sounds a little silly, but it's a little bit of just the packing center. It's sort of the place where um, things get packaged and kind of hang out and wait until they can be eliminated. So, um, you know, the colon, it, it just happens to be that that's, there's a lot of the cells or of the lining are kind of turning over all the time. And they're also exposed to things from the environment that are not the same as in, in the small intestine and the stomach. So it's, I think, there where sort of a lot of the risk factors, lifestyle risk factors kind of come to bear in the colon, which is why it's, you know, one of the most common cancers um, it, worldwide and certainly in the United States. Um, but yeah, that's that's what a gastrointestinal specialist, and you can imagine there's all different kinds of things that can that can go wrong with that system and, and cancer is certainly among, among those. So you have now shift a little bit to, to your focus. You've really kind of taken on the, the genetics and the pancreas was there, and I know you mentioned you had the family friend with colon and I know there's Mm -hmm. some similarities. I mean, I, I've had friends. Um, I've got an uncle actually right now that's has colon cancer and he's on fulfluorinox, which was mm-hmm. so crazy when he told me that, that he, that's the yeah. same regimen, uh, similar regimen that my dad was on. So it was very eerie, but it, why did you gravitate towards the pancreas? Was, was there something there or did something happen or? Well, I think that, um, you know, once we started this clinic that was focused on uh, GI cancer risk and prevention, Mm -hmm. Um, honestly, we started seeing patients who said, I have a lot of family members who have pancreatic cancer, or I have a BRCA mutation and my dad had pancreatic cancer. What can we do about this? So honestly, in, in, in a lot of ways, it was what the patients were asking us to do and to see and to push forward. Um, You know, I think because we were, you know, we had a genetic counselor with whom we were working, it was um, natural that people would gravitate towards us um, for that question, do I have a syndrome? But then 
the extension to that is, you know, can we do screening? And it's really, I mean, screening is not, you know, if you think about colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate, I mean, those are screening tests that have been around for decades and have, you know, there's been controversy for, against, how to do it, how often to do it, when to start. Um, but cancer is like, Pancreatic cancer and ovarian cancer, the you know, which are very deadly cancers, the screening world had kind of, um, you know, things had been tried, but seemingly nothing, um, you know, had worked. So in some ways, people had sort of shifted a lot of focus, I think, uh, or, or at least had not put focus on early detection and screening because it was felt that it was too difficult. It was not possible. And so really a lot of emphasis has been on, um, you know, better treatment regimens. And and by no means is this to say that there shouldn't be focus on that. Obviously, we want to have, um, you know, the best and the, the you know, most effective treatments. But I think um, because it was a hard thing to do, screening was not sort of a top priority. I would say, uh, except for a few kind of, um, you know, trail trailblazers who are out there who have um, been really working in this area um, and have, you know, sort of continued to push us to think that maybe pancreatic early pancreatic cancer early detection and screening are possible and are feasible, and that with you know, better technologies and, um, you know, better markers that we could get there. So it was, you know, it's really been fascinating speaking about history to kind of feel like you're part of history a little bit in the sense that this is something that wasn't being done, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and really something that I've seen develop over my career, even in the only the last, um, you know, five to 10 years. So let's talk about that. The, the clinic that you started there, um, what are you guys doing and, and what, who are you guys seeing? Just to give our audience an idea of, of what that looks like. Yeah, so we uh, see individuals who are at increased risk for GI cancers and that, that can span, you know, as we said, it's a, there's a lot of organs that are associated with the GI tract. Um, and so, you know, people who have striking family histories, and by striking, I mean they have multiple individuals across multiple generations that have the same cancer or possibly have related cancers. So we think about for pancreatic cancer, um, family members with breast cancer or ovarian cancer or even melanoma, there's a syndrome that's associated with melanoma and atypical moles and multiple moles that also has a risk of pancreatic cancer. Um, and then some of the other, like the, the colon cancer syndromes or the, the syndromes we typically think of as increasing risk of colon cancer can also increase the risk of pancreatic cancer. So, um, you know, I think there's a, so much overlap between um, a lot of these cancer predisposition syndromes that it um, you know, they kind of find a home with us because we can do what's called risk assessment where we basically take their family history and we draw what's called a pedigree, which is basically a visual representation of someone's family history. And it just helps us to, in one look, um, sort of get a sense of how things are tracking. Are they on all on the mother's side or all on the father's side? What cancers are developing? And then also things like what age are they happening at? So syndromes tend to present with cancer 
earlier in life, although I will say for pancreatic cancer, that's not actually always the case. Even in syndromes, like if you think about uh, BRCA-related syndromes, pancreatic cancer can happen at an age that would seem to be an age when other individuals without a syndrome might be getting pancreatic cancer. So so age isn't always um, the only factor. And then we also look for certain high-risk populations. So for example, um, Ashkenazi Jews, anyone with Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, um, there are you know, BRCA mutations that are at, at a higher rate in that population. So we kind of put all of that together and then decide whether genetic testing makes sense. And, and then based on that result or, you know, putting everything together, we decide what's the best next step in terms of screening. Um, and then we also have um, some clinical trials that are going on so we can decide whether someone is eligible to participate in research, should they be interested in that. Um, so, you know, it's it's a, I, the other thing we have is we have a close relationship with our oncologists. So, for example, now in 20, starting in 2019, there's been a recommendation that all individuals with pancreatic cancer have genetic testing, in part because there are certain treatments actually that are um, more efficacious in individuals who have certain um, genetic mutations. So that's created also some question of how best to do genetic testing. You know, we may not be able to see every single individual for an in-depth consultation. And so our oncologists, we've been working with them to get the genetic testing done ahead of time by them. And then we might see them um, in certain circumstances. So I think our clinic is a place where you know, we we help to counsel patients and then importantly figure out what the next steps are and what we can do about that. So the majority of the people that you see there in the clinic are people with these high-risk mutations or have like these various degrees of family history. And I say various degrees because I know that just from experience, there's some people that have, you know, grandparent, parent, and then there's some people that have like a family that is just, unfortunately, you know, there's no, there's no such thing as bad luck. It's bad genes, right? I mean, genetically, yeah. they just have this predisposition and uh, unfortunately the, the bloodlines through the centuries or through the years have just you know, haven't been the best of bloodlines to mix, right? I guess I, we can say sometimes yeah, I mean, with I some think... of these these patient populations, I feel like you know, no one. And this was a question I I, I have for 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 later, but like, no one meets someone and says, "What's your genetic makeup?" Right? right. Like your spouse, like, oh, could I have a a gene you know right. panel before yeah. we actually decide we're going to go down this this road, you know, of marriage and yeah. having kids and family? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. You know, and, and it's interesting because when you're counseling patients, it, you know, and family members, for example, when you're doing genetic testing, um, you know, it, it you never know how someone's going to react. Some some individuals have obviously a lot of, um, like a parent, for example, for children has an a, extraordinary guilt about, oh my gosh, I'm going to pass this on. Um, and that's totally understandable and totally normal. Um, of course, we have not chosen our genes. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, it's no one's fault or yeah. anything like that, but it's how humans, you know, deal with certain information. Interestingly, you know, when people are getting testing, let's say it's the children, let's say you have, a, you know, three siblings and 
two test negative and one test positive. Interestingly, sometimes those who test negative feel guilty. Like, why does someone else have to deal with this and I don't? So it, it, it cuts both ways. And I think part of the important thing is that someone who's undergoing genetic testing, especially if, you know, they have some of these vulnerabilities and, and, and emotional um, concerns about this, that's why counseling is so important. And so doing testing with someone who is attuned to a lot of these um, kinds of possible reactions and that are all normal. The whole spectrum is normal and can help to help, you know, counsel someone. It's basically counseling someone how to deal with this information and, and what that means. But yeah, I mean, you know, genetics, the, the other part of it is that there's a, a big fear about how is this going to influence, you know, my ability to get insurance or, you know, am I going to be discriminated at work because I have a high risk of cancer? And the good news is that nowadays, there are a lot of laws in place, both on the federal level and on the state level, that help to ensure um, no genetic discrimination. So there's some caveats, and that's another thing that someone can talk about with their um, genetic counselor or with their um, provider who's doing the genetic testing. But, um, you know, it's it, and it's families. I mean, in the end, families are, are stories, right? They're histories. And so you get into a lot of good and bad, right? So some... Some families talk a lot and they know a lot of information. Some families are estranged. Some families are unique. They're, you know, adopted or they don't have any information about their father's side, for example. So um, it's it's a it's a it's a privilege to be able to, you know, be able to hear these stories and talk to people and, and help them work through some of this. But in the end, genetics, it's, you know. It's the card you pulled, so to speak. There's, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, there's, it's not anyone's fault. And and I always think the good news is that we have the ability to know this information, and that gives us the ability to act on it and do something about it. If we didn't have that, you know, I'm not sure that we would um, be ethically able to always offer genetic testing if we didn't know what what to do with that information in research. Sometimes we do things where we're still trying to figure out what we do with that. But um, at least here we can we can offer um, different management depending on the situation. Yeah, and I think you just said some powerful stuff here that I think you mentioned, you know, with families. And, and this is something that I, I can share with the audience. For me, you know, I tested positive for a BRCA mutation that my mom had and we assume possibly my dad, but my brother tested negative. You know, so just because I think someone, you know, there is a, a a gene mutation that's present in a family doesn't necessarily mean that everyone, all the kids get it, right? And I know my right. mom has felt a lot of guilt um, when I got my results, but I think she felt a little bit better when my brother, and I don't mean this in, a, in like a, a snarky or a, a sarcastic way, I think she felt a little bit better when my brother didn't have it because he has, he has uh, daughters and I have two sons mm -hmm. and, you know, the risk of BRCA in breast cancer, as my mom is a two-time breast cancer cancer survivor, is very high, um, whereas mm -hmm. not as high in, in males. But I, I also think, so that's point number one, but then you said something which is really critical, is that people who have these families and know of these mutations really need to go to a center of excellence, like a University of Chicago, um, and, not, and not, I'm not going to beat up on the small regional hospitals, but you have to find 
places that have a genetic counselor that can walk you through what this means. Um, you know, what does it relate to insurance? Cause there is a lot of, you know, life insurance I know has always come up, you know, health insurance, they can't discriminate, but you know, people I think read a lot or they go to the internet and they go on these chat groups and there's a lot of misinformation out there from, yeah. uh, from a lot of these groups. So I think that's really critical. Yeah, I think along those lines, sort of a newer um, development has been testing that you can, you know, order at home, basically, the direct-to-consumer testing. And, you know, there are these kind of um, hybrid um, genetic testing companies, and by hybrid, I mean that they are um, legit companies that Mm -hmm. we would test someone in that are now starting to move into the direct to consumer space and meaning that you can order the test from home. But at least in this case, um, you know, you would be getting uh, a, a reputable company that has all the certifications that a laboratory needs to have. Um, and then they also offer the possibility of speaking to a genetic counselor, albeit usually over the phone, but mm-hmm. at least there is that component to it. I think the ones that are challenging are the ones that are, and I won't name any names, either good or bad, but the <laughs> ones where that. you're <laughs> where you're getting, um, you know, these tests back on, you know, they're just, they're measuring kind of these, these variants within the genome. They're not doing what is sort of standard, which is sequencing the whole gene through to see, you know, is, is this basically spell checking a whole gene. You know, in these cases, they're looking at individual letters to see if those letters are incorrect. And, and that, there are problems with that in terms of cancer predisposition genes. So, so right now, I think some of the companies are offering things like BRCA testing, um, or even for colon cancer, um, certain genes. But I would be very, very wary of using that information, either positive or negative. I think all of those tests need to be validated in a, by a, legitimate lab. Um, so, you know, th- those are some caveats to genetic testing mm-hmm. these days is that, you know, and, and that's been used for scams. Actually, there are these horrible stories of Medicare being um, billed by these, you know, sort of um, pseudo companies that are telling seniors that, you know, you want to, don't you want your family to know about their risk of cancer? And then they ha- they charge Medicare thousands of dollars and the patient never gets any or the individual never gets any results back. So, so you know, that's unfortunate, of course. But um, so I think you're absolutely right. You want to go to a center where they have a genetic counselor, or at least someone who's trained in providing genetic counseling and interpretation because, you know, these tests aren't always yes, no, like you have a mutation or you don't have a mutation. There are all these sort of gray zone results called variants of uncertain significance. And what to do with that information is, is critical. And um, in, in the end, we don't really act on those variants because we don't know what they mean. But there are these stories of people being told, oh, you need this surgery or you need this treatment or you need that based on these results. So it's critical to have people that know know what they're doing, professionals, and um, and then, you know, what to do with that information once you, they've made the correct interpretation. So your point is very well taken. I couldn't agree with you more. So I, I want to ask you, what does it look like 
for someone, let's say someone's listening to the podcast, they know they have a BRCA mutation. What are you, what does it look like if they were to join your clinic? Um, just kind of yeah. give maybe a visual or maybe kind of a timeline because um, I think this is important because I think, you know, with breasts, we know you go in, women go in every year, they get mammograms and depending if they're I know way too much about this, but if they have a dense breast, then they have to get like an ultrasound exam, which is a, you know, an elevated type of, uh, you know, screening. If you are or high, even an MRI, yeah, MRI, MRI kind of stuff. Um, yeah. you know, with colon cancer, once you reach a certain age, or if you have a, you know, a high risk, uh, you know, candidate, then you've got to do the colonoscopy. So, yeah, for for someone who has a let's say we'll, and we'll keep this simple a BRCA mutation, um, they've had a, a case, uh, they have had um, pancreatic cancer in the family. What's it mm-hmm. look like if they were to join the clinic there at the University of Chicago? Yeah, so um, the typical flow is that an individual would um, you know make an appointment with us, and generally we have two parts to the visit. So we have a genetic counselor. Uh, who meets with the individual first. Now, if a person already comes having been tested, there may be less of a role for a genetic counselor in terms of actually counseling the individual because hopefully they've already um, had that counseling by whoever did their testing originally. Um, uh, but it's a, it's a chance to review the family history, make sure it's accurate, go over that individual's personal history, um, and then, you know, the, the discussion then becomes if they do have a family member, a family history of pancreatic cancer, that's where we start to think that maybe um, screening would be warranted. And I say that we think screening may be warranted because our screening, in contrast to the examples you gave of breast cancer screening and colon cancer screening, pancreatic cancer screening is really kind of in its early days in the sense that, um, you know, we don't have big studies, long-term studies that have looked at what the outcomes are. We think we have an idea of what tests are the best, at least right now, using the technology that we have. Um, and so, and, and I can go into that in a little bit, but I think our first step is to say, is this person someone who is at a risk level that we would think would benefit from having intensive screening for pancreatic cancer? And there's no real cutoff number for that, but, you know, in our, in the medical field, we kind of think maybe someone who is five times the, population risk of pancreatic cancer. So the general population risk, lifetime risk of developing pancreatic pancreatic cancer is about 1.5%. So, um, you know, we're kind of using that as a gauge, kind of a five-fold increased risk. And someone who carries a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 mutation without a family history, we actually are not sure that they meet that kind Mm -hmm. of threshold. Again, I, you know, if you could see me in my office right now, there's a lot of hand waving going on <laughs> because we actually don't actually have good risk estimates. These are, these are hard kinds of numbers to, to get at because part of it is that if you study people who come to a high-risk clinic, you're going to see families that have a lot of cancer in them because that those are the people that identify as high risk and they come to your clinic. So if you just study those people, you'd have one risk estimate, but perhaps if you had someone who had less of a family history and had a BRCA mutation, maybe that risk would 
be different or lower. So anyway, it's a it's kind of complicated, but at at least the consensus among you know sort of quote unquote experts or professionals is that it's it's a mutation plus a family history, suggesting that there may be something else that's pushing that family with that mutation to express, um, you know, the diseases in the pancreas, as well as maybe the breast and the ovaries. So um, that's why for BRCA, a family history is sort of a requirement, at least right now, in most centers to be considered for screening. I see plenty of people who have BRCA1 or 2 mutations and don't have that family history. And so there's a question mark of what do we do with those individuals? I try to provide a lot of reassurance because the truth is that the lifetime risk is still low. It may be slightly higher than the general population, but remains at a level where we don't think at this point that the type of screening that we do, um, you know, is is actually going to um, be effective or, or, or helpful for that individual. Um, and why do I say that? Because the truth is that it, the studies that we have now, very early studies that have come out, show that, yes, we can use some of these screening tests to detect early pancreatic cancer, but we're screening a whole lot of people who are considered high risk to find those few that actually have something. And and that's that's totally fine and is great for the people where we're able to really make a difference. But, you know, it's it's screening a lot of people with tests every year that, you know, in some cases find what we call incidental findings like a small cyst and, you know, that we may, you know, what there's this sort of scanxiety, you know, what we, we may create more anxiety by, by doing some of these tests. So, so that's kind of the, the fine line that we walk. So to answer your question, I think at this point, if there's a family history in of pancreatic cancer in a first or a second degree relative in someone who has a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, as well as a number of other, you know, hereditary syndromes, um, and that can include ATM, PMS2, uh, sorry, uh, PALB2, um, as well as someone who has Lynch syndrome, um, and then a f- some other kinds of hereditary syndromes. Um, those are the people with a family history that we're going to be um, recommending screening for. At this point, that obviously um, can change as we move forward. And so, yeah, the, the folks who know they have these mutations or they come in and they have a very high occurrence of particular cancers associated with these gene mutations and they get genetic testing and they realize they have this type of mutation, they should certainly be in a early detection or screening protocol for GI cancers. So yeah. what does that look like? So are they giving blood? Are they doing diagnostic testing or screening, I should say? We should we should use the term yeah. screening, right? Because it's, <laughs> it's all in the same, but I mean, I, I think the... the the nihilism, and that was something that I've I've written here. You know, as you mentioned before, I think you mentioned you know in other diseases, there's you know there, there's these types of screening, but there has been kind of this pushback on pancreatic cancer, and are these tests necessarily? But yeah. for someone at yeah. a high risk, you know, I've always said, you know, I, I was just listening to an audio book about death and dying. And the doctor was saying, you know, how he changed, you know, some of the story was like, you know, how, 
doctors talk to patients was so powerful. And he said, you know, to ask the patient, like, what do they want to do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that the same thing can be said for, you know, with these patients at a higher risk, like, what do you want to do? Do you want to know when you have the disease or do you want to wait um, potentially? Yeah. I mean, as you've said before, I think percentage wise, you know, the, the percentages are high enough, I think, to be concerned. I, I don't think they're mm-hmm. like astronomical, like we've shot off the charts if you have a BRCA mutation, but I've always said, at least for my own personal experience, like I always want to know, like I yeah. want to know knowing what my family went through with my dad and seeing this happen, you know, multiple times that, uh, and I, and I totally agree. I mean, my passion is, as I mentioned, it comes from very deep within my family of, of early detection and, and, and certainly even prevention if that's, if that's feasible. Um, I think what we need, and this is why having individuals on research protocols and you ask what that entails. Basically, that just means that a patient would allow us to include them in our registry. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, once we have our, the proceed consortium up, this will become part of, a, of an international effort to learn what we what are the outcomes of the screening that we're doing. Um, patients can also um, donate blood if they're interested. And we actually have a clinical trial going on right now that's sponsored by a company that's looking at new markers for early detection. So those are called biomarkers. They're essentially just blood tests that could potentially be used as a first pass for screening, that if someone had, you know, tested positive for a number of markers, that they could then um, potentially be enrolled in screening. So I think the, 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 the thing to know here is that these are still somewhat early days for pancreatic cancer screening. And I think the best thing we can do is to get as many people into these research studies um, where we can understand what we're doing with screening. The early, as I mentioned, there are some very early studies that suggest that screening works in this population. Um, And as I said, a lot of people have to be screened to find few cancers, but mm-hmm. you know that that is a success. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has taught us that we need to be find better ways to do it and to figure out who is even at the highest risk among these people that right now we're putting into a high risk category, because the vast majority of them never develop anything and are getting, you know, very regular screening tests with a, an endoscopic exam alternating with an MRI test. So if we could, you know, sort of be even more precise in who of those high-risk people are at the absolute highest risk that would benefit the most, then I think um, that's, you know, that, 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 that's our ultimate goal. But for now, I, I agree that finding, you know, finding those people that we, we really make a difference in where they can either go to surgery um, or, you know, have some of, you know, the early studies now are suggesting a three-year survival of 85% in people who are screened. That's phenomenal. Those are numbers that have never been seen for pancreatic cancer. So, so there's a lot of hope, um, but I think we constantly have to be questioning ourselves about how could we do this better and how can we also, you know, there, there are a lot of questions about, in cancer screening, you know, if you find something, does it make it a difference for a person? Does it does it save their lives? Does it does it reduce 
um, additional treatments or are we just picking it up earlier, but the outcome, you know, in the end would be the same. And I think those are the types of questions that, that we absolutely have to answer. And, and also how can we do it better? I think there's a lot of interest in, you know, how can we really identify those people at very high risk? So, you know, that, that's in part why I, I'm so happy to be part of the Proceed Consortium because this is a very collaborative group of individuals who are really worldwide coming together to to be able to answer these questions because nobody on their own could do this. Um, you know, even with our larger, <laughs> the numbers of patients that we're seeing, we really need large numbers to be able to um, really prove and have the evidence to back up um, pancreatic cancer screening. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, Precede has been uh, a big initiative for us here at Project Purple to help get off the ground. And, you know, I, I think there's never been a study this large. I mean, in terms of what we hopefully eventually will accomplish with Precede and, you know, getting these high risk families in there. And I think that's the one thing. And I know we've talked about this on previous episodes that really lack in this disease is we just don't have enough of the backup and the data to prove the findings. Um, yeah. But we do know with these high risk families that they're, they, I mean, I just saw a statistic, what, it's 5 to 10%. Uh, I've seen statistics pinned on 10%, but 5 to 10% of the cases of pancreatic cancer are genetic mutations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, that's a big number. Um, you yeah. know, if, if we could, uh, you know, and, and if we can identify those folks early on, that's going to help move the needle. And I, I think the other thing that people don't realize is that the stuff that is, I guess the ancillary stuff, and, and that's probably not giving it justice, but the other things that will come out of this screening are monumental, you know, in yeah. terms of disease prevention, which I know yeah. has been talked a lot. You mentioned variants, you know, the, the variants that we will find, because I'm, I'm sure there's other mutations underneath the hood of this thing that we just haven't been able to identify yet that we, that we will identify because we've got this large population in these studies and we're, we're screening these people. But then the treatments that potentially could come from this, you know, treatment protocols may change and disease, you know, management you know, it's just yeah. really fascinating. So it's exciting. We're glad you're on it um, and mm -hmm. you're involved. I've got a couple questions left for you here. You yeah. mentioned something early on that, I, and I it, I always say, you said you're talking with your hands. I'm talking with my hands. I wish we had a vlog because I, I'm constantly <laughs> taking notes or I've got air quotes or I'm, I'm using my hands. And you said something before and I made a note. You have been really intrigued by the environmental effects on the colon. So mm -hmm. this is going to be a loaded question. Do you think the environment plays a role in cancer progression? I absolutely, um, you know, I think there are some examples that are better than others. And, and so environment, you know, again, you, you don't see my air quotes, yeah. but Environment can mean a lot of different things. So environment can be, you know, the place where you live and the air that you breathe. It can be what you put in your body. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also kind of, um, you know, micro environments within, within the body. And, you know, an area that, for example, is now sort of exploding in terms of our understanding because we can finally study it is the 
the what's called the microbiome or the bacteria, viruses, everything that, you know, sort of lives in our GI tract because we know the GI tract is not a, a sterile organ. So, you know, that's why the environment for the GI tract is so critical. And there have been really provocative um, studies about pancreatic cancer even, which we think of as the pancreas as a sterile organ, but it does have a connection to the small intestine. And so it has micro, you know, microbes that can make their way and, and potentially influence cancer onset, but also cancer progression. Um, there's some fascinating studies that are being done here by some of my colleagues looking at how the microbiome may affect certain types of chemotherapy, specifically immune-based therapy, because the immune system is obviously constantly having to decide in the GI tract whether something is is a, an invader or is a good guy, good guy or bad guy. And so, you know, how the immune system deals with the microbes can have an effect on how treatments even work. So I think that's a whole new frontier. Um, but, you know, we know that um, things like obesity and smoking and, you know, other types of maybe, you know, bigger environmental things, um, you know, the, what effect those have. But, I, you know, I think the best advice that I can give people, because it, this is always what they ask, is, is there anything I can do to yeah. prevent cancer? Can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Um, so I think the best advice, at least for pancreatic cancer, is, you know, to, to not be obese or overweight and to not smoke. And to, you know, drink alcohol in moderation. Uh, Apart from that, right now for pancreatic cancer, I think there's not compelling evidence that any particular vitamins, aspirin, or anything else definitively can, um, you know, be prevent um, cancer onset or um, progression. But those are things that we could learn also through, through work like the Perceived Consortium. Yeah, because we just don't have enough data. I, I, it's fascinating to me because I've seen some, I mean, there's been, and, and you've been doing this a lot longer than I have, but, and I don't mean any disrespect by that, but, you know, just there's been a lot of things through the years. I remember maybe like three or four years ago, there was something about barbecue food and how that played into cancer progression. And, you know, but again, the, the data wasn't large enough to, to look at and yeah. say, yes, yeah. that, that, yeah, barbecue's bad for you. Now, right clearly process meat and certain dietary things, you know, a well-balanced diet, you know, is more advisable to someone, you know, just living a healthy lifestyle than, you know, eating processed foods and McDonald's and all these other fast food chains five days a week or seven days a week, you know, naturally. But, but as you probably know in the work that you do, and certainly the patients that I see, People who, you know, get pancreatic cancer don't always have all of those risk factors, no. right? So, I mean, there's clearly other things that are at play and they they play a role, but they in and of themselves are not always going to be, you know, the only thing. But there's certainly if someone is trying to do everything they possibly can, those are, you know, good there, there's some, you know, sort of good advice that we can give individuals. Absolutely. I've got three questions left for you. And and being that you're a GI specialist, I got to ask this question. And this came up in a previous podcast with a survivor. 
And mm -hmm. we've had a lot of survivors on our podcast. And, and one of the, the main questions that we always ask is, what were your symptoms? And it seems to me that a lot of them have these, these symptoms that n none of them have, right? It's always yeah. like a new type of symptom. And so this guy that we recently had, we have not aired his podcast yet, but it'll, it'll air once yours is aired, said that um, he had like bowel issues. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what? There's so much that we can learn from our stool and um, our urine. And he said, you know what would be a great idea? And he was dead serious when he said this. He said, what if we had a smart toilet that would analyze mm -hmm. our digestion, you know, as we went to the bathroom? And I, and I sat there for a minute and I thought the guy was kind of being kind of funny about that, right? And, that, and I was like, no, mm -hmm. that's actually a brilliant idea because, you know, most people, and then we had another person on the podcast and, and, and I asked the same, I asked the question, like, did you notice, you know, like your urine, was it really dark or was your stool, you know, really chalky? And she's like, you know, to be honest, and it was a female, she goes, I, I just, you know, went to the bathroom and then, you know, most people don't sit there and once they go, not to be disgusting here, you know, look at, yeah. you know, what's in the toilet. They just flush the toilet and it goes down. Yeah. Right. But so do you think in you as an expert in, in, you know, GI specialty, you know, you think there's some validity to that, you know, in terms of being able to prognose or diagnose based off of urine and stool? Yeah. Um, I don't think it's silly at all or, or, or out there. In fact, for colon cancer, we have stool-based tests. So we use either a test that looks for blood or even now there's a test available that includes looking at DNA that's shed from the colon. Now the colon is you know, sort of an obvious way to do that because it's constantly shedding cells. And so some of those, if they're cancerous, would be shed into the stool. It gets a little bit more challenging when you're talking about um, other organs within the GI tract, but it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. And I know of various individuals that are that are looking into that. Smart toilets. Um, I, Smart <laughs> toilets. So it still may require, you know, sort of collection of stool, which is um, obviously not always what somebody wants to do. Correct. I think the future, honestly, is in blood blood based markers. So the technology is getting so sensitive and good to pick up, you know, small amounts of tumor cells or immune markers. Um, or you know other changes that happen when a tumor is um, when is present that we may be looking in a decade at kind of one blood test that is a pan cancer screen hmm. right so that you're you have specific markers for pancreas you have specific markers for colon you have specific markers for breast so I think that's the direction we're going because you know. As much as I love talking about stool, <laughs> yeah. that'd be kind of hard. Yeah, yeah, probably be more accepted. I mean, I'm, we're so grateful in GI that the poop emoji has taken off yeah. because it's allowed us. It's like let us sort of talk about stuff that yeah. we normally would keep um, behind closed doors. But I think that's where we're going to go for for early detection and. Um, you know, and allow that then to be sort of the first test, the first pass that then we can hone in on a particular um, organ. Um, 
So the other thing too, just to note maybe for some of the um, listeners in terms of symptoms, typically those sort of color changes of stool and urine have to do with bile. Mm -hmm. And so the way in which you get those changes is really when the bile duct is um, compromised or narrowed because a tumor is pushing on it and you can't drain like it normally would. So, you know, but some people have tumors that grow in in the middle part of the pancreas or in the tail of the pancreas, and that isn't really anywhere near where the bile duct is. So so those are important changes to be aware of in in your stool color, urine color, or even skin color, right? So you can get what's called jaundice or a yellowing of the eyes and the skin. But typically that occurs when a tumor is kind of more abutting the 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 bile duct. So that's why pancreatic cancer, you know, again, that's why we need screening because there are no good symptoms as as early warning signs. Maybe the one that has the most hope potentially is uh, new onset diabetes. So mm-hmm. there are people that have looked at using a test called the hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of your basically glucose control over the last three months, using that potentially as an early detection marker. And I sometimes, you know, suggest that to certain patients um, as kind of a poor man's way of at least having some kind of screening of the pancreas. And, you know, even if it's not related to pancreatic cancer, you know, early diagnosis of diabetes and doing something about it is is, you know, a good outcome anyway. So I think, though, that we're moving towards blood-based markers, but certainly stool-based markers are already in use for um, other cancers, so it's by no means far-fetched. It's real, it's, it's real world. <laughs> it's exciting stuff. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, uh, you know, we didn't give the audience a, a heads up or a warning here, but I, I think all of this stuff is really fascinating, whether we're looking at, um, you know, stool or, you know, hopefully eventually blood, which I think will be, you know, I agree with you the way to go. I just don't know when we'll get there though. You know, that's the, I guess that's the billion dollar question. Not even million dollar yeah. question is like, when do we get there? Yeah. I, I'm hopeful. I mean, the, the, you know, you want to have a test, you have a high standard, right, that you have to meet for these tests. They have to be very sensitive and specific, meaning you have to not miss people, but also if it's positive, you want to make sure that you're actually detecting disease because on either end, it could be bad. Like if you have a screening test that a lot of people are positive for, you're doing a lot of extra testing and kind of, a, you know, a go- wild goose chase after something that, you know, it may not be, um, you know, sensitive enough. And on the other hand, too, you want something that if it's positive, you want to kind of know that you're going to be able to really pick up disease. So um, I think the standards have to be incredibly high for this this kind of an endeavor. Um, but but people are working on it. And some of the early studies, you know, there's various groups that are trying to get these markers going and, and they're at least promising. So I see, I see hope in the future. Well, as I said, I hope sooner than later, uh, you know, we hopefully will see some, some big moves here on that, on that front. And I really do, because yeah. I think it's going to change the industry as a whole. And, and, you know, for people who, you know, again, the, the, the nihilism and for people, for whatever reason, it, it hopefully will save a lot of lives. 
Yeah. Last question for you, and then we want to give our audience an opportunity where they can find out more because this conversation has been excellent. And I'd love to, you know, if there's someone in the Chicago land area or someone throughout the country, how they get in touch with you. And this is, I, I save the best for last, as they say. What's the most important thing or things that families should know about what we just talked about? And it could be multiple things or it could just be one or two things. But I, I think that's really important, um, you know, because, again, we've got a pretty vast audience and maybe there's someone listening here that hasn't gone yet to get testing or has a family history um, yeah. or, you know, doesn't know where to start. Right. I think the most important thing is to have a sense of what your family history is. And that may require some asking of family members and talking about things that maybe um, people have not talked about before. Um, I think, you know, it, finding the right time to do it. So in, in, the, in the work that we do, people always say, oh, we're like the Debbie Downers at family <laughs> gatherings. Like, hey, tell me about all the family history, medical <laughs> family history. So, so maybe, you know, a, a joyous family occasion is not the right time, but finding a time, um, you know, to really get that family history, um, straight. Uh, and, and sometimes it can be challenging. So, I work with a, um, a community um, advocate um, and activist here in the Chicagoland area for, for early cancer detection. And her mantra is, you know, family secrets kill families. So yeah. getting those secrets out and making them not so secretive anymore um, could impact other generations. And we see that time and time again that some people are like, well, I don't really want to do this testing. But if it's for my kids or for my nieces and nephews, there's, you know, there, there's more hope than that this could change, even if they don't feel like it's something they want to do themselves. Um, so I think, you know, having an accurate family history um, and then acting on that, if it's something that seems, um, you know, like there's a lot of cases of cancer or there's people with young onset cancer, or there's people developing multiple cancers in, in, a, in a single individual. Um, those would be things to bring to your doctor's attention. And even a primary care doctor is always a good place to start and say, hey, you've, we've never talked about my family history. What do you think about this? Is this something that warrants um, more evaluation? And then if, if it does, or if someone, you know, finds that they want to talk directly to a genetic counselor, you know, a lot of medical centers have them. Um, there's an organization called um, the National Society for Genetic Counseling or Counselors, NSGC. Um, and they, on their website, even have, you know, you put your zip code in and it'll tell you where you can find genetic counselors in your area. So it's always worth sort of making that contact if you think your family history is suspicious. And then certainly for anyone who has is concerned about pancreatic cancer, given their family history or their personal history, getting in touch with a center where someone has a pancreatic cancer screening, um, you know, program, um, has a cancer risk program, those would be the right people to talk to um, about next steps if screening is something to be considered. Awesome. Last question, best place yeah. for someone to find you? And learn more, and, and and this is a this is like a loaded question, right? Because there's so many places I know from you know working on the Precede website, or you know, is it emails, a website, phone number? 
Yeah, I think that, you know, the Precede uh, Consortium, certainly for pancreatic cancer, um, you know, early detection and genetic predisposition is a great place to start. There is representation really not just within the United States, but worldwide. Um, certainly in the Chicagoland area, we are incredibly happy to, um, you know, see individuals who might be at risk. Um, there are also a lot of different organizations that can help to connect folks locally. So sometimes those are ways to make connections with, um, with centers of excellence. Um, but the University of Chicago, if someone has questions, um, you know, you can certainly um, find find us on the web. Um, we have a, a website for our GI cancer risk program, um, and we're we're very happy to um, help with that. Do you want me to give you a phone yeah, number? Absolutely, for whatever. More yeah, whatever information. Yeah, if you want, if you have the phone number ready, that always always is helpful because sometimes people. Um, you know, what our audience, sometimes they don't have access. Uh, sure, sure. To certain so things. probably the best number right now is 773-702-5973. That is for um, a nurse who can help to determine whether someone is, a, you know, would be appropriate to come see us in, in at the University of Chicago. Awesome. Sonia, thank you so much for First of all, all that you do for this community, the GI community as a whole, and, and in this case, the pancreatic cancer community. And thank you for being a guest and sharing what, all the great things that you're doing there at the University of Chicago Medical Center. And uh, as we say here on the Project Purple podcast, that's a wrap of another episode. That's a wrap. Well, project. thank you so much. It's uh, really been an honor to to speak about this because as you may have heard, this is something that comes from very deep down for me and um, I'm incredibly passionate. We appreciate everything you do and we know the future is bright for Precede and for all the work. We're, we're excited to be working with you this year um, You know, to help you continue to do the great things you're doing and we hope that will continue in the future. So that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. <laughs>